The song we've just sung is an old one, but such an appropriate song for all of us to remember uh, in our lives. Who is leading us? In God's providence, uh, I did not realize in, in the planning of the service and the choosing the songs early in the week that this would be the song we would sing as we say goodbye from the dorms. And Alex and Jen, I pray that this song would, would stay with you. And just as we have sung, that the Lord would lead you as you uh, move to different places. The song that we have sung also is a great song to introduce us to one of the big themes of uh, the book we are reviewing today, and that is the book of 1 Samuel. We are beginning a new journey as a sermon series in a new uh, sermon series on the book of 2 Samuel. But as a way to prepare us for that journey, it is appropriate for us to remember and refresh ourselves on what the first book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, is about. When we think of the book of 1 Samuel, perhaps some of the sweetest stories that we have grown up uh, in church and remember hearing and knowing about, David and Goliath, or perhaps a calling of the little boy, Samuel, who's serving in the temple, and he, he at one point, after figuring out that it was the Lord who was calling him, he responded to the Lord, speak, O Lord, for your servant listens. The book of 1 Samuel is a wonderful book with many cherished stories that we are familiar with as, uh, as we have grown up in church, but how would we summarize what the whole book would be about there are three major acts in this book, and uh, I just want to let you know that we will not be reading the whole book in the service. It would take about two and a half hours if you were to do so. About the time you would spend watching a movie, so it's not that bad. You could actually read the whole book of First Samuel in one sitting, and I think it would be way more profitable for your soul than spending two and a half hours watching a movie. Three major acts in this book, uh, because as we look at the panoramic picture of this entire book, uh, there are some major characters that, that seem to have the spotlight in, in these major acts of 1 Samuel. In chapters 1 through 7, there's a, a shift from Eli to Samuel. In chapters 8 through 15, there's a shift from Samuel to Saul. And chapter 16 to chapter 31, a shift from Saul to David. What do these characters all have in common? Well, they serve as leaders of God's people. They serve as leaders of God's people. So the book is telling us the story of the people of God by looking at what kind of leaders they had and what kind of leaders they wanted to follow. Now, in the historical context of the book, the events taking place in this book uh, happened from the time of the Old Testament judges. What were those times like? Well, at the end of the book of Judges, we read that everyone was doing what was good in their own eyes. That should feel very relevant today. We would identify very easily with that phrase. And the other description is that there was no king in Israel. So individualism and lack of good leadership over God's people were the historical setting uh, when this, the events of this book took place. It's important for us to realize that the book of 1 Samuel is really the first half of the larger book of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Uh, the reason why we have two books is because in the translation of this book and the copying of it, uh, to, for, for it to be multiplied, the scrolls were just not enough to contain it all in one book. So the translators and the copyists decided to divide up the story of First and Second Samuel into two books, but they were initially written together. And they were supposed to be read together. 
But the writing of the book of 1 Samuel took place much later than the events in the book. How do we know that? Well, just listen along to two references. You don't have to turn there, but just listen along and see if you can pick up on any historical clues of when would this book of First and Second Samuel would have been written. In First in Samuel eleven eight, speaking about Saul, when he Saul mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were three hundred thousand, and the men of Judah thirty thousand. Let me give you a second reference. In 1 Samuel 27, 6, when David had fled to the Philistines and uh, was seeking to keep his life in, in safety from Saul, we hear that that day, Achish, a Philistine ruler, gave David Ziklag. And the narrator gives this historical little clue. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. What do these references tell us about the time when the books of First and Second Samuel were written? Well, it, it clues us that the earliest possible time had to be sometime after the northern tribes separated themselves from Judah and from the Davidic king. The northern tribes wanted to have their own king, separate from the king God had set over his people. So the ten tribes of Israel set up their own king, kingship line, their own royal dynasty, and their own worship place. So if you were an Israelite, after the time, after Solomon reigned, pretty much after his reign, the kingdom divided. If you were an Israelite after Solomon's reign, the question that was going on in the back of your mind, and the question you would be wrestling with, was, who should we follow? Which leaders should we obey? Which royal dynasty rightly is over us. Which royal dynasty should we be loyal to? The book of 1 Samuel is the book that tells us the story of how God's people struggled deeply to have godly leaders and struggled to follow them. Yes, there are some moments of, of sweet, right following of the right kind of leaders. But often... In the history of God's people, they struggled and were disillusioned and fell for the wrong leaders. One of the pastor friends uh, who writes a lot on biblical counseling, Pastor Deepak Reju, has written a very helpful book by the title, She's Got the Wrong Guy, Why Smart Women Settle excellent book. It is possible for us as human beings, and especially single ladies, to just be lured by the wrong kind of guys. In a similar way, the people of God can often be lured and fall for the mesmerizing effects of leaders who actually they should never follow, and yet their hearts attach themselves to them. The Israelites were often running after wrong leaders. And the book of 1 Samuel tells the story of Israel's struggle to get the right leadership. Now, don't think this is just an Old Testament problem. The text that our brother Brett read earlier in the service for us from 2 Timothy chapter 4, reminds us that this danger is with us even today. Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. He said, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions 
and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Well, friends, as Christians, we need to listen to the message of 1 Samuel and then 2 Samuel to rehearse the story and hear the story of how God led his people even during their leadership crises. So what we see in the book of 1 Samuel is a God who is leading his people even when his people struggle to know who to be led by. I might say that God is leading his people in this book. God's leading of his people in this book is marked by three concerns. And these concerns are patterned for each of the three acts in the book. In each of these major acts in the book, we will see a a primary concern that God is trying to bring out as he is struggling with his people to help them get and understand who they should follow. What are the three concerns that God has? God's concern for his people is to be under his word. God's concern for his people is to be under his word. In the second act, we will see that God's concern for his people is to be under his reign. God's concern for his people is to be under his reign. And last, in the last act, we will see that God's concern for his people is to be weaned off from the wrong king. To be weaned off from the wrong king. God's concern for his people is to be under his word. This summarizes chapters 1 through 7 in 1 Samuel. The first two chapters introduce us to the first contrast of leaders in this book. While they tell the story of the birth of Samuel from a barren woman, chapter 1 introduces us in passing to the wicked priests that were serving at Shiloh, Hophni and Phinehas. And we are told in chapter 2, verse 12, that the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And amazingly, they were the ones who were the priests at Shiloh. Things had gotten really bad for Israel to have that kind of priests. Is it possible for religious institutions to be led by people who do not know the Lord? For people who are worthless and wicked? Absolutely. It happens today. It happened in ancient days. Friends, wicked spiritual leaders have been around for a long time. We should not be surprised. We should be saddened, but we should not be surprised. By that, we should also not have any inkling of endorsing them. But we should not be surprised. And the beginning of 1 Samuel tells the story of the birth of a baby who will be a better leader for God's people. But this baby was to be born of a, of a barren woman, Hannah. And twice in chapter 1, the narrator tells us that she was barren because the Lord had closed her womb. The narrator wants to tell us that information twice in chapter 1. This affliction was not an accident. It was not a coincidence. It was not just that that's how nature goes. Oh no, the Lord was involved even in this affliction in Hannah's case. Now we don't know if she knew what the narrator told us. But we know that she knew who to call on in the midst of her affliction. Chapter 1 makes it so evident that in the bitterness of her soul, Hannah knew where to cast her lamentations on. She went to the temple of the Lord, to the tabernacle, where, where those wicked priests were ministering. And there, despite the poor leadership, Hannah came to pray and cast herself on the Lord. And in due time, the Lord answered and blessed Hannah with a son. And before Hannah brought her child to God's house, 
her husband uttered a phrase that will be a key for the rest of this book. Elkanah said to Hannah, May the Lord establish his word. Chapter 1, verse 23. And when Hannah finally brought the little boy to the temple, Hannah utters a prayer that exalts God's leadership in her life. And not only in her life, but over his people and over all the earth. He is the God who saves his people. There's no God like him. There's, he's a God of refuge. He's a God of knowledge. He's a God of reversals who changes destinies. He kills and he brings back to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up his people. He's the creator God. He guards the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked he will destroy regardless of how humanly strong they are. God will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. How did Hannah know that God would give strength to his king when she's still living in a time when there was no kings in Israel? The Spirit of God led Hannah to pray this prophetic prayer in the middle of Hannah's prayer, there's a phrase that will be echoing throughout the rest of this book in chapter 2, verse 9. For not by might shall a man prevail. That's like the, that's like the, the echo that will be repeated throughout this book in 1 Samuel. Hannah's song and prayer ends on this prophecy and speaking about a time when God will raise up a righteous king for his people, Hannah's song ends on this provision that God will give strength to his anointed king. The God Hannah exalts is a God who leads his people to be under the right leadership, under the king of his choice. Oh, friends, being under his reign it's way more important than seeking strength and security on your own. Being under the leadership that God sets over his people is more important than doing what is right in our own eyes. Hannah's song is like a, a table of contents for the major themes of the book of First and Second Samuel. As a matter of fact, most of the themes that Hannah brings into her prayer here in First Samuel Two will be repeated again in the last two songs of 2 Samuel. Go home and read 2 Samuel 22 and 2 Samuel 23 and read the themes of those songs in light of the, the prayer that Hannah prays in 1 Samuel chapter 20, in chapter 2. And you'll see how this book is supposed to be understood as one whole. If chapters 2 and 4, uh, 2 to 4, tell the story of how God planned to remove the wicked priests from their posts and replace their leadership with the ministry of a young boy, we, we pick up the details of that replacement in chapter 3 as the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh. When the, boy, when the Lord asked the boy, to hear his word. And the end of, of chapter 3 closes on some phrases that are, are important for the rest of this book. Chapter 3 ends with these phrases, And the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And then this phrase, that the Lord let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And chapter 4 begins with the words, <clears throat> And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. This is where the cycle of God's revelation comes to a full orbit. The Lord reveals himself to his man, to his prophet. The Lord establishes him and his words do not fall to the ground. And then his words are spread, come to all Israel. God's concern for his people was that they would be under his word. 
And if the priests who are in their post failed to bring God's word to God's people and failed to live it themselves, well, God would go through the trouble of replacing them and doing so very drastically. In chapter 4, God defeated the army of his people and took out the wicked leaders and allowed even for the ark that they had been in charge of. Even that ark was to be taken out of the land. So chapter 4 ends without priests, without an army, without an ark in the land. This is a time in which God had raised up Samuel to bring God's word to his people. Would you have liked to live in those times? But as we see the unfolding of chapters 4 and on, we realize that in the midst of that tragic set of circumstances and in the midst of that bleak and dark season in the history of God's people, it was enough that God's word began to come again to all Israel. That was enough. God had established his word once again among his people, and it didn't matter how tragic things were in their history with their government, with their, with their priests, with even with the ark of, of the Lord. All of that was gone. But the word of the Lord had come back to his people. Praise God. It was enough. Chapters 5 and 6 tell us that God did not need his people's strength to fight against the Philistines. As a matter of fact, God let them experience one of the greatest humiliations in the battle in chapter 4. It's as if God says, I don't need your army. I don't need your army to trash the Philistines. So the Ark of the Covenant alone, without priests to care for it, alone would go from place to place throughout the cities of, of the Philistines. God alone could do it as his ark traveled in enemy territory. And until the Philistines all figured out that the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them. And it was the hand of the Lord that brought all the afflictions upon them. Would the people of God learn that God could battle against their enemies on his own, even without an army? Would they get it? By God's grace, when we get to chapter 7, after we had heard that the word of the Lord had been spreading out throughout the territories of Israel, we get to chapter t uh, 7, it's, and it's one of the, the most amazing chapters in the book when actually we are told that Samuel, after his lifelong ministry uh, of bringing the word to God's people, the people of the Lord have learned to trust that God could save them from their enemies. After they had renounced their God, their false gods, and, and recommitted themselves to the Lord and to him alone, the Philistines come against the Israelites again. And it's at the same place, in the same region, where they met the, the Israelite armies earlier in chapter 4, near Ebenezer. What would happen this time? The people of the Lord called on Samuel to intercede and ask the Lord to protect them. And he did. And he did. And we are told that after that battle, that the Lord thundered from heaven, the Lord used his forces of nature to beat heavily against the Philistine army. They fled away. The Israelites pursued after them. And the victory was so heavy that for the rest of the time of, of Samuel's ministry among them, there was peace between Israel and the Philistines. Oh, friends, 
These were the effects of a people who had learned to trust that God can protect them without relying on their army, without relying on their strength, that God alone, his leadership over them was sufficient through a man who was committed to bring God's word to God's people. Friends, if God went through so much trouble to replace the priests and bring a man to them who would commit to bring God's word to his people, I wonder, I wonder if you in your life would find this move a strategic move, as sufficient or as enough. Do you find that getting the word of God in front of us is the most strategic thing, the most precious way you could spend your time. I understand we all have responsibilities, we all have jobs, we have things that we have to do in our day, in our week. But honestly, do you find that time spent with God's word is worthy to be on your priority list? Honestly, I'm, I'm concerned when I hear people go through weeks and months without opening God's Word on their own. Does it happen? It does. Can it happen? It can. Even Christians who have been Christians for a long time can go through seasons of, of great pressures and, and difficulties when, when spending time with the Lord is, is a challenge and is difficult. But friends, if God is so concerned to make sure that His Word is being brought to his people on a regular basis, that he would go through so much trouble to ensure that God's people have his word. Friends, we have God's full revelation here in this book. We have it in multiple translations. We have it in multiple copies in our homes. There is no reason, there is no reason that we should sit, chill, and not care and prioritize it in our lives. How will we stand before the judgment seat of God? With worshipers from the time of, of Hophni and Phineas, who would come to the temple and they did not have faithful priests who would bring them God's word. How would we stand next to each other and say, wow, you had God's complete revelation at your disposal and you did not crack it open for weeks and months? If God is concerned that his people are under his word, are you as well? Friends, this is why applying this to church life, when churches today need to be revitalized, the first and most significant step is for the preaching of God's word to be restored in that pulpit. If the people of God are not exposed the faith, faithfully to the word of God, to the regular diet of expositional preaching, the people will suffer. God leads his people by being concerned that they are under the faithful ministry of the word. That's why the, the elders in any church that wants to honor God and, and commit to God and his ways, the elders in any faithful gospel preaching church should be men who are known not only for their character and how they live out the biblical qualifications uh, that we see in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. By the way, qualifications of which are actually for every Christian. Except there's two in particular that are significant that elders have to have. And that is the ability to handle God's word faithfully. The ability to teach God's word faithfully. And second, to rebuke and confront well those who don't those who would mislead God's people in a wrong direction. And I praise God for the elders that the Lord has blessed our congregation with as we are renewing an elder vote today and praying that the Lord would continue to raise up men who would be shepherds in our congregation. But God's concern is that his people would be under his word. That's the first act. The second act in the book of 1 Samuel is it's from chapters 8 to 15. God's concern for his people to be under his reign. Chapter 8, the second act starts with the elders requesting for a king to be like the nations. 
This request was a clear rejection of God as their king. Sadly, at the end of Samuel's ministry and life, the trust in God's leadership over them had deteriorated, particularly among the elders. It's the elders who come with this request to Samuel in chapter 8. God's people fell for the wrong kind of leadership again. They wanted to be like the nations. Centuries earlier, God gave instructions to Moses about a time when God's people will have human kings and what those kings should be like and what they should and should not do. But it was wrong for them to want to be like the nations in how they're governed. So in chapters 9 and 10 and 11, God in His mercy grants them this request, even though God warned them through Samuel of how this could turn out for them. God's grant, God grants them a request, raises up a king, allowing this king to start fresh, empowering him with his spirit, enabling him to have victories in battle. So the people seem happy, at least in chapter 11. In chapter 12, Samuel solidifies installing Saul as king, and he reminds God's people of the evil motivation that they had in making this request for a king. The evilness of their motivation was they wanted to be like the nations. They wanted to be governed like the nations. They wanted to be ruled like the nations. Just because God gave them a king and gave them a, that king favor to win some battles in chapter 11 does not mean that their original heart motivation was less evil. So Samuel reminds him. He also reminds him just because God did not punish them for this evil right away does not make their evil motivation any less significant. Yet God showed his mercy by not punishing them right away. Samuel exhorted the people of God and their new king that they should follow the Lord wholeheartedly. And Samuel exhorted them not to fall for empty things that will not profit them, them anything. Otherwise, both they and their king would be swept away. That was the warning with which chapter 12 ends. And by the time we get to chapter 13, by the time we get to chapter 13, the first king, Saul, had rejected already God's word. The honeymoon was short. The honeymoon was short. Saul's rejection of God's word is repeated again in chapter 15. It becomes so clear that God's plan to reign over his people was not only rejected by the elders when they asked for a king, but now God's desire to reign over his people through a king that he raised would now be rejected by the fact that this new king rejected God's word. So Samuel gives this warning to Saul at the end of chapter 15. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Oh, friends, this is what happens when we prefer our own word instead of God's word. Saul forfeited the right to lead God's people. God was concerned that his people would be under his reign. They blew it in chapter 8 with asking for a king be like the nations. And the first king also blew it in chapter 13 and chapter 15 by rejecting the word of the Lord. So what does God do? God is still on the throne. He still has a kingdom in view for his people. He's now telling Saul, you're not the one who's going to be carrying out my reign over my people. I'm rejecting you from being the king over my people. God's concern was that even through this king that was set up in place for the people of God, that he would reign through his word, through his actions. So from chapter 16 on, or at the end of 15, 
God shows us another concern. God's concern from chapter 16 on is to wean off his people from following the wrong leader. And this story goes on all the way to, verse, to chapter 31. God quickly provided another alternative to Saul's disobedient reign. God sent Samuel to anoint another king candidate. But the choice of this king would be in great contrast to the way Saul had become king. Unlike Saul, who was the tallest in Israel, the new king God would choose now was so insignificant that he was forgotten even by his own father. When Samuel came to visit Ishai from Bethlehem and asked to see his sons, Ishai forgot to call David. That's how insignificant he was. David seemed to have been the last choice for a king, even in the father's eyes. And when it was time for Saul to recruit the young men of Israel for his army, the older sons of Ishai were recruited, but not David. He's too young, too insignificant. And yet, God had chosen this David to be the one through whom God would one day reign again through and over his people. In the battle with Goliath, when David shows up unannounced to bring some provisions to his brothers, he showed up not to fight. He showed up just to bring some provisions. And yet, he hears about the story in chapter 17 of, of the way this giant Philistine would defy the name of God. And David hears that, and his heart is stirred up, and he cannot contain himself to be just one who brings provisions for his brothers. He's going to be the one who goes to battle against this giant. And in the battle with Goliath, David tells us of his great conviction that this battle... This battle belongs to the Lord. And that God is the one who wins battles. Not with sword or spear. Here's a guy who did not even make it to be enrolled in the army. And he's going to teach the soldiers of Israel how to fight and how to win battles. You would have, if, if you have been one of the brothers of, of David... Or one of the soldiers in Israel, like, who is this guy who dares to think this way? What does he know about even wielding a spear and a sword? But this is the man God chose to be the leader over his people. This is the man God chose to, to win battles. Not because he could. It's because he knew who really could win the battle. Saul needed to hear the lesson that came out of David's young mouth. That the battle belongs to the Lord. That the Lord does not win with sword and spear. Saul needed to hear that. The same echo that Hannah had sung in her song earlier. For men shall prevail not by might. But it's not only Saul. The Israelites needed to hear that as well. And then David says the whole earth needs to hear this lesson from chapter 17. We want leaders who can wield power and strength. But that is not the kind of leaders that God needs over his people. That is not the kind of leaders that God's people need over them. God's people need leaders who rely on the power of God to accomplish his purposes despite our limitations and weaknesses. That's the kind of leaders God's people need. After such a victory, Saul enrolled David in his service immediately. Saul's son, Jonathan, makes a covenant with David in the very next chapter. Jonathan had come to recognize something special in David. So special that he pledged his life to David 
what a surprising covenant. When Jonathan normally would be the next in line in, the, in Saul's dynasty. Saul, uh, Jonathan realizes there's something special in this David. Saul even gives his daughter in marriage to David, as he promised. And Saul thought he could control David and use David to further and strengthen his reign. But before chapter 18 is over, Saul realizes that David's strength is way greater than Saul can control. So he becomes envious of David. And before chapter 18 is over, Saul is already starting to plan to kill David. From chapters 19 through 26, David is often on the run from Saul, roaming from place to place throughout Israel. And the red thread through this section of chapters 18 through 26 is not only that God's anointed king, who was the insignificant, who was the weak, who was the one least expected, not only is he pursued and threatened, but that various people throughout Israel surprisingly choose to follow him instead of David, instead of Saul. From priests to the outcasts to the afflicted, even to Nabal's wife, Nabal having rejected David and being harsh to him after Nabal died, Nabal's wife follows David. But the most prominent of all is Jonathan. He chooses to follow David. He chooses to find his security and identity not in his father's throne, which normally we would say would belong to him, but in David's throne. Jonathan, Saul's son, had come to believe that God had given the kingdom to David. And he, Jonathan, would rather pledge his loyalty and allegiance to David and make, make covenant with him than seek to follow his father's path of holding his own throne. Chapters 27 to 31, David has fled from Israel to be far from Saul's threats. Surprisingly, we see a contrast now between what happens to David in enemy territory and what happens to Saul in his own territory. Saul has home advantage. David is in foreign land. And yet, the author, the narrator, will move the, the story and telling us what happens to David, what happens to Saul, what happens to David, what happens to Saul, from chapters 27 to chapter 31. It's a, an amazing contrast. In chapter 28, Saul hears of the threat. So in chapter 27, uh, David receives Ziklag as a city, just as a gift, a favor that God had given to David through this Philistine ruler. In chapter 28, Saul hears of the threat of the Philistines and seeks a medium who could help him hear one last word from that old prophet whose, hope, whose word he had ignored, Samuel. Samuel confirms to Saul that God's word is carried out what Samuel saw, said to Saul back in chapter 15 will be carried out the next day. God will do what he has spoken through his word, through his prophet. Listen to the words of Samuel to Saul in chapter 28, verse 17. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor. In chapter 29, David who was in enemy territory, having found favor from enemy rulers and even being recruited to fight for them in God's providential hand, he sent away not to be on the battle, he sent away from the battlefield in safety. But Saul remains terrified because he had heard of God's decree that the next day both he and his son and his army will be swept away just like it happened back in chapter 4. In chapter 30, David continues to fight, having been sent away by the Philistines not to be in their battle, 
David goes back home and finds out there's another battle that actually God had wanted him to fight, to fight the Amalekites who had raided Ziklag. Those enemies that Saul had rejected to wipe out at God's command, David still has some business to do and finish them off. He wins, takes great spoil from them, recovers the families of, of his men and all that the Amalekites had taken. And actually, here's David at the end of chapter 30, sending out gifts and provisions to the leaders of Israel because God had blessed him. What a contrast. What a contrast with Saul who's counting the minutes for the next day and the judgment of God to fall upon him. What a contrast. And then the day long decreed by God, the day decreed in chapter 15, the day reconfirmed in chapter 28 is here in chapter 31. God has done everything he has warned his people about. The king and his sons and the army will be swept away. And the cherry on the cake is that even part of the land of Israel was taken back and given to the Philistines. God said back in chapter 12 that this is what would happen to the people if they and their king would reject the word of the Lord and replace his leadership and follow someone else. Saul followed his own heart. Saul wanted to protect his own reign. Saul wanted to be the king on the throne. God said it would not end well because God continues to lead his people even when they struggle with leadership crises, even when they have the wrong guys that they're following. God remains on the throne. He continues to lead his people through the ups and through the downs. In Saul's case and in the case of the Israelites, it did not end well for them. But God said so. It happened as God said. Even in this judgment and tragic end, we learn that the word of the Lord had not fallen. Not one word had fallen to the ground. It happened as the Lord decreed. Oh, friends, the people of God need leaders who are ruled by the word of God. And when they don't, everyone will suffer for it. Everyone will suffer for it. The people who are being led by leaders who do not give themselves fully to the word of God will suffer for it as well. Do we believe this today? God leads his people by showing his concern over them to help their hearts not to follow the wrong kind of leaders who are more interested in protecting their own throne, who are more interested and more confident in their own strength, in their own abilities, than in God's ability to work powerfully through weakness, through suffering, even through persecution. The amazing part in the book of 1 Samuel is that God anointed David in chapter 16, and he is on the run and persecuted for the rest of this book. That God would raise up people over his, over, over his people would raise up leaders over them who do not mind going through suffering and weakness because God does not need our strength to overcome our limitations. Yes, a God, the God we have is a God who strengthens his king. But we need to learn from this book that God leads his people by having these three concerns. And these concerns should be ours as well that God's people would be under his word, that God's people would be under his reign, and that God's people would be weaned off from the wrong kings. Would they follow the wrong leaders, or would they follow the king of God's choice? Imagine how this message would have rung for the ten tribes of northern Israel who had rejected David's line. Imagine the, the potency of, of this book for to tell the ten tribes of Israel who had said, 
we, we're establishing our own king, our own government, even our own worship. When, when Jesus shows up in chapter 4 of John, the Samaritan woman at the well is still wondering, which place should we worship? Israel, I mean, uh, Jerusalem in Judah, or this other mountain, which was in the northern tribes? Until the day, day of Jesus, these northern tribes and the southern tribes remain separate. The kingdoms have not united. Well, friends, the people of God continue to struggle to know who are the leaders they should follow. And the amazing part is that when actually one from the, from the line of David would finally come to unite the ten tribes back with Judah and to extend that invitation of unity not only to the ten tribes of Judah to join the Davidic dynasty, but that this king would actually invite even non-Jews to come and be a part of the people of God, that they would be part of the fold of God. This Jesus had come. He is David's greater son, the king that God had promised, the anointed one who would come. And the big question is, Will people who hear about his reign, about his coming, will they follow him? Or will they continue to follow the wrong leaders? The leaders that our own hearts set up as kings in our own hearts. This is a big question for us. This is a call of the gospel that we get. Who will be king in your life and in my life? What we see in the book of 1 Samuel is merely the, the anticipation of a pattern that will not go away. That pattern will stay with us until the day of Jesus. And we realize even after Jesus had come, and even to today, people still struggle. Will I follow the king God wants to set up over my life? Or will I just go on with what is pleasing in my own eyes? I wonder who will be king in your life. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for being the God who loves your people deep enough that even when your people have struggled with leadership crises of who would earn the affections of their hearts and who would earn their trust to follow them, that time and again you would, you would woo your people back to yourself, that you would provide godly leaders. And even when, when your people would reject those leaders, that you would continue to pursue your people. And Father, that you would send your own son, that he would be king over us. Father, we pray that we who have heard this message today, we would put our affections, our hearts trust on King Jesus. Father, we desire you to be king over us. Help us to do so in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.